Hey guys, it's Graham. What's cracking? Isn't the apocalypse fun? Just so much fun. I keep thinking about how bad Russia has been ever since they killed the Romanovs a hundred years ago. Not good. Good. Of course, maybe they were a hot mess before then. Who the heck knows? Life is what it is. We're on our eighth straight day of gas going up 10 cents. Well, that's not exactly true, because last Monday it went up 20 cents. Tuesday, not at all. 10 cents on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I managed to kind of hold my breath through the weekend. Woo, woke up this morning, it was still 3.79. Went up the mountain, did my work, came down the mountain, boom, another 20 cents. So. This is, this is great. This is just so much fun. And all of a sudden, all of your lefty friends want to get into the complicated factors of oil prices and stuff because they'll never admit that they elected an idiot backed up by an army of idiots and they do idiot things and those things raise the cost of just about everything. Such is life. Let's talk about that a little bit. Not about the fuel prices, but about the idiots. Um, not today's idiots either. Idiots about 70 years ago. But to do this, we're going to have to jump into our own mini Wayback Machine and go to the year 2009, when my big brother, Dr. Farmer, was... Was he starting grad school? It was right around that time. I think he was in grad school. After he started, he took the odd year off here and there to work on the business and it wasn't a, a straight through thing but while he was doing that I think he was trying to uh, elevate my level of intelligence trying to trying to get me up onto his level of academic and literary tastes and so he'd buy me books every once in a while and I just look at him and think when the hell am I ever going to read this and if I do when am I ever going to use or value anything therein that was me at 25. Now I'm 37, I feel a little bit differently. It just, you know, he was boring at a much younger age. I started to get boring a little bit later into my 30s. So he gave me this book by William F. Buckley called God and Man at Yale. Buckley died in 2008, I remember that. He was one of the old guard conservative thinkers in academia. And he was a Yale man, and after his time at Yale, he noticed a distinct cultural shift that started at the faculty and went down into the student body, where they explicitly, strictly moved away from anything religion-based, theology-based. They tried to couch it in friendly language and stuff, but you know, he talked about the uh, religious heritage of that institution, of Yale, and how it was, it was uh, kind of openly, but winking and coyly, you know, moving away from that and taking its baby steps towards becoming hostile to that, as, as all of academia is now. It's the kind of book that I, I needed a lot of external context in order to understand the import of what was going on in it. And some of that external context comes from current events, and some of that external context comes from things that were happening around Yale and around the country 
at the time in the 1950s. But if I were to summarize it and its value, I would say that it, it basically gives you a roadmap of how academia got to be as bad and as pointless as it now is. You know, back then the edgy stuff that they were preaching was communism and atheism, and nowadays it's critical race theory and gender divergence theory and all this other stuff that's just de designed to gut the cultural strongholds of the Western world, the things that conservatives ostensibly want to conserve, things like the family, etc., etc. So while it was a bit of a dry read, um, you know, I've still got the paperback on my shelf. I found that it was included with my, excuse me, audiobook subscription. And I was like, oh, okay, well, let's do what I do and bump up the speed. And so I listened to it today and uh, it was interesting. It had a rather lengthy foreword, <coughs> excuse me, that was written by Buckley for a later edition of the book, probably the 25th anniversary edition, which still would have put the book somewhere in the 70s. So uh, it was it was interesting to say the least, but if I had read it right when my brother gave it to me at age 25, and actually I, I did try, but I got so bored that I stopped, uh, you know, back then. But if I had, if I had pushed through, I, I probably would have been extremely confused. It's not the most glowing endorsement of a book that I can give, but I, I think I gave it four stars. It was informative and interesting, and I'm glad that I found it in the audio format because with the way life goes, it just takes me, excuse me, a lot longer to read uh, books in print, uh, especially if they're kind of dry. I'm still struggling through Quixote, but as I said on State of the Dread, I'm... Uh, I'm not overly worried about my commitment to read Quixote exclusively in paperback. I'm going to read through the longer parts on audio and then kind of go back through the paperback copy that I have and take notes and highlight things as I've done for the first 80 or 90 pages in it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm learning from it and there are definitely beautiful takeaways from it, but it's... Uh, it gets into the weeds a lot. It spends a lot of time in the weeds, and I'd rather be multitasking than just reading words off a page when that happens. Anyway, let's take a quick break, and I will tell you about what is next on the reading docket. This podcast does not have a sponsor, but if it did, I would probably just start pimping my brother's website. Check out www.wallquotes.com. They do vinyl lettering, like all the signs and stuff that you see inside people's house. The live, laugh, love, and in this home. Like, they've got a bunch of those stock quotes. They also do custom stuff. But he's diversified his operation over the years to include other things like a laser cutter that will cut things out of wood and metal. He's also got VeloSite, a website that's dedicated to reflective decals for bicycles. He's big into cycling. Kind of our whole family is. He decked out my bike with a whole bunch that match the the black paint job on the frame, but if you're driving around at night and headlights hit it, the decals light up. He put some logos on there, he's got some uh, icons that look like bike chains, he's got right along the frame it says up, up and away. It's cool. And since they're a small business, they've been kicked in the huevos by not necessarily the pandemic so much as all the stupid ridiculous policies 
enacted by the governments of our great fine nation in response to said pandemic. So if you're looking for lettering, signage, whatever, go check out wallquotes.com. And now on to the episode. And we are back. All right, so as far as other books that I'm reading, excuse me, usually one in audio and then one in print. The print book is called What So Proudly We Hail. And uh, this is another one that my brother gave me for Christmas in 2020. It sat on my shelf all year. But he he gave it to me, said it would be a good supplement for uh, our homeschooling that we do with the kids, especially because we like to read stories to them. This book is really a collection of public domain, or I guess some of them would be authorized as well, uh, short stories and excerpts from different time periods throughout the history of the United States and on different subjects. It's more organized by subject than by chronology. Subjects like citizenship, um, you know, civic values, religious values, and uh, they're, they're stories that were written at a time that um, doesn't really date them. It just makes them kind of period pieces. I'm two stories in. It's a pretty thick book. The first one was about 20 pages, and it was about a man named Philip Nolan, who was uh, a fictional figure in history. I, I feel like I've mentioned this before, but he was alleged to be one of the men who was going to desert the United States with Aaron Burr and form a new country in the interior out in Indian territories. And he got arrested and he said, I, I hate the United States. I don't ever want to hear about the United States again. And uh, a judge condemned him to a life at sea where he was constantly punted from ship to ship, never saw the shore. Nobody was allowed to talk to him about home, none of that stuff. And uh, man, it was, it was heartbreaking. It was very moving. The second one is about a girl named uh, Mary Anton, whose family immigrated from Russia in the 1920s. And I guess this one was excerpted from an autobiography. So, you know, real person, real stories about her real family and stuff. And I'm not, I'm not all the way through it, but it's a little bit shorter than the Philip Nolan story. And, uh, you know, it's about how excited she was to go to school, how proud her dad was to take her to school. and and what that was like back in the day, just kind of things that we take for granted now, and you know, on top of institutions that have been changed and in many cases corrupted or, or what have you. But the, the point of the book at large is to be an education in, in civics and an education in the idea of America and what we should be as Americans. Um, I think a book like this is relevant and important simply because the loudest parts of the cultural engine are constantly shouting at us, America bad, America racist, America slaver, America colonialist, bad, 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 bad. And without putting the United States and the American experiment in the larger historical context of the world, it's impossible to understand how exceptional the history of our country is in some ways, and how typical it is in others. You know, to, to quote Dallin H. Oaks, the history of racism in this country is not a happy one, you know, for sure. But there, 
there is also, you know, this is something that came up in the 2008 election that I remember is that, um, you know, they were, there were anchors or somebody in a debate was asking Obama and McCain, like, you know, what do you think is America's greatest moral failing? And predictably, Obama said slavery. And, you know, I don't think that's our greatest moral failing. I think it's definitely a moral failing. It's not a moral failing that's unique to the United States. We did also end slavery. There was also a civil rights movement. There was also the the ending of segregation and Jim Crow and all that stuff. So I, I think there's a concerted effort and you know the evidence is, is pretty plainly all around you in popular culture to just crap on the idea of the American experiment in an attempt to you know, trigger this widespread malaise so that people abandon it and stop defending it, uh, which is a travesty. And in order to understand why, you need to have that context, you need to have that perspective and understand you know, why the American experiment is so unique and why it merits defending. Ah, sorry for the volume change there. I had just pulled up in my driveway as the kids were going out to... Uh, run the sleds across the street they shut the laundry room so you don't hear that either so anyway um, I mean obviously the whole point of being conservative is to conserve something that works and you know not let it fall by the wayside you know that doesn't mean to not let it improve or to improve on it but you know that's not something that should be done willy-nilly or on a whim you know, I think the founders understood that, and that's why they made it so difficult to amend the Constitution. Is you know, basically, it would have to have overwhelming support. Everybody would have to be on board. We have that standard for our legal founding, but our cultural founding has no such standard. And uh, you know, cultural power is where the real power is at, because you've probably heard this before. Um, you know, politics is downstream of culture. You couldn't pass something politically unless it was culturally popular at a certain level, at a certain extent. So if you want to conserve the best parts of the American experiment, you have to be able to identify and articulate what those are. And a great way to do that is through stories. They don't all have to be uh, you know, non-fiction accounts, but they have to you know, illustrate the the correct principles that you do want to emulate. And so far, in the first two of this, I have found that. After looking at the table of contents in the book, um, I'm encouraged by the fact that it includes Harrison Bergeron by Kurt Vonnegut and The Man Who Corrupted Hadleyburg, which is my absolute favorite Mark Twain story. So I'll keep reading those and reporting on those as they go, or as I go through them. But, you know, in, in a larger sense, you know, why do I read what I read and write what I write and do what I do? It should all be, I mean, initially on paper, it's for my own personal enrichment and enlightenment. But, you know, the reason I recommend books to you guys is to proliferate the things that I think will spread the best things into the world. You know, I, I want I want to put that good stuff out there. And so that's why I find books that I deem to be great and I share them with you and I hope that you uh, dig them. So that's it for today. 
You guys know the drill. Thanks for listening. The Radcracker Podcast is produced by Graham Bradley. If you want to send me something for the mailbag, my email address is dreadpennies at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Minds or Instagram at dreadpennies. Be sure to subscribe to the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash Graham Bradley. And check out dreadpennies.com for updates on everything else that I'm working on. Till next time, stay rad, drive safe, see you out there.